Well, Happy New Year to you. Grateful that you chose to spend your first Sunday here with us at New City Church. Um, when I was in high school, uh, one, one day me and my friends had an awesome idea that we were going to make some homemade dry ice bombs. If you don't know what that is, it's basically you can get like a two-liter can or two-liter, you know, empty it out, a uh, two-liter bottle, and you put some water in it, you break up some dry ice in it, you put it in there, and you tighten the cap, you know, as quick as you can, and you get away from it because it can explode like at any second, and it explodes and it makes a massively big noise. If you ever made one, you know what I'm talking about. And so we, we got the supplies, and we drove to like this, this uh, one-lane uh, one road, and we pulled off to the side where there's enough room to, you know, park your car and all that sort of thing, and so we, we get our first two-liter out, we put some water in it. We put some dry ice in it, and uh, we tighten it up, and we put it, you know, somewhere in the woods a little bit further away from the car. We ran back to the car, and we're waiting for it to explode. And about 20 seconds later, you know, as we're waiting for it to explode, a cop drives by. At which point, I mean, there's nothing wrong with us, like, being on the side of the road, so we weren't worried about that, but we were like, oh, my goodness, do not explode, do not explode, do not explode. About five seconds later, boom, whoop, whoop, and so we were like... <laughs> Shoot, you know, being the nice law-abiding citizens that we were, we threw everything in the car and we booked it. And so we threw everything in the car. Luckily for us, the, 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 the road was a little curved, so like the cop couldn't quite see us as we were leaving. We go the other way. There was about maybe about 45 seconds away, there was a shopping center. So we flew into the shopping center, went to the grocery store. We all split up. The cop now never found us, and it was awesome. It was awesome. We didn't make any more after that because that was a closed call, but like that was a lot of fun. And, and at that time, the cop's probably like, what is happening? I grew up in Cary. Nothing ever happens in Cary. He hears this big bomb blow up. He's probably waiting for something like on the dispatch. He, was like, he has no idea what happened, where we went, what was going on. And I share that story because this morning we're beginning our new series through the Old Testament book of Esther. And all throughout the series, and particularly this morning, we're looking at this question. Have you ever wondered if God cares about your life? Things happen in your life, maybe good, maybe bad, and you're wondering if God is even noticing, if he's even there, if he's even in the details, because if we're honest, a lot of times we would say it doesn't seem like he is. What do we do with that? If you've ever wondered that question, then you're in a great place this morning. And so we're going to be in Esther chapter 1. Go ahead and open the Bible if you have one. If not, there's a black one somewhere around you. We're on page 433 if you want to read along. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take that one home. It is our gift to you. Now, again, all, really all of the book of Esther kind of centers, centers around that question. And before we get into it this morning, I want to give you some context to catch you up of what's actually happening before we get into the story. A couple of things that are interesting about the Old Testament book of Esther. It is actually only one of two books in the Bible uh, that were named after a woman. The other one is also the Old Testament book of Ruth. Um, and it was actually one of the last books written in the Old Testament. Uh, we don't know who the author is. Perhaps it was Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, who is one of the main characters in the story, uh, possibly about 20 years or so after these events took place. Um, so chronologically, it was one of the, it's not chronologically in the Old Testament, it's not the end of the Old Testament, but it was actually one of the last Old Testament books written. Now, the events that take place in this book were happened around 480 BC, so it was a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. And uh, it happens in the kingdom of Persia, which at that time was the largest known kingdom in, the history, in human history. Uh, this book gives the background for the Jewish Feast of Purim, if you're somewhat familiar with that, um, because of the events that take place in this book that's, that we will read over the next couple of weeks. Now, here's what's interesting about the book of Esther. Uh, Christians have historically not been sure what exactly that we are supposed to do with this book. For example, in the first seven centuries of Christianity, uh, not, not one commentary was written on the book of Esther. Not one. 
Uh, and in fact, John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s, is one of the uh, well-known church reformers, if you have any uh, uh, background with church history. A well-known guy, reformed a lot of things in the church. What we know from him is that there is no record that he ever preached a sermon from Esther, and he never wrote anything about it. Martin Luther, one of his contemporaries, another uh, uh, you know, well-known historical Christian figure, uh, we have no record that he, ought, that he either uh, preached a sermon from the book of Esther, and he did translate the Bible into German, but he had significant reservations about this book. Uh, the question is why? Like, why has Christians historically been unsure about it? The reason is because it is extremely difficult to interpret, and it never mentions the name of God. If you're somewhat familiar with this book, maybe you read about it in Sunday school, it's a lot more graphic and uh, questionable than you might remember, and we are never told what God thinks about it or why the, the characters make the decisions that they make. We don't know their motivations. We don't know why they're doing what they're doing, and so it makes it extremely difficult. Again, this book is all narrative. It is all story. There's no commentary. So it does not tell us what they are thinking. The next question you might be like, well, what what does the rest of the book of the Bible say about Esther? Maybe that can help us. The rest of the Bible says absolutely nothing. Nothing is said, nothing is referenced on Esther and any other parts of the Bible. Uh, Karen Job, who has written one of, if not the best commentary of Esther, uh, she is, she, as she's writing about this and she's saying how it's difficult to interpret, it's easy to misunderstand what is, what is going on, she goes on to say this, that it's probably not a good idea to preach or teach through the whole book of Esther. So guess what we're going to do? <laughs> we're going to do just that. So Esther chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to go somewhat quickly, and I'll make a few points as we go. Here's what it says. These events took place during the, uh, during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. So Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name for the Greek name, which is Xerxes. Uh, again, at this point, uh, uh, Persia is the largest uh, empire that the world has ever seen. If you're familiar with the uh, movie, I think it came out in the mid-2000s. It was the movie entitled 300, which is essentially like the 300 Greek Spartans trying to hold off a massive Persian army and King Xerxes. This is that Persian army, and this is that that king. At this point in the story, Xerxes is probably in his mid-30s. And so that's where we are. Verse 2, it says, In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Medea, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. And so this massive feast, we actually historically know that it took place somewhere around 483 B.C. Uh, And we know this because it was about three years before this massive expedition that Persia was going to reign on Greece and try to fight Greece and take over uh, the regions of the world that Greece was uh, running. Um, At this point, again, it's the high of the Persian Empire, and Susa is the modern is in modern-day Iran. Uh, it was kind of uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus' uh, winter palace. He would spend his winters uh, in the city of Susa. Now, what's interesting here, I just want to point this out. If you're an original Jewish reader, you might be wondering, or you might assume, if we could go back and ask you know, them living at this time, where do you think God resides? Uh, perhaps they would say, yeah, God's probably, you know, he's in charge, he's, he rules over everything, but really he resides in Jerusalem and specifically the temple or the tabernacle, right? That is where his presence is. And if you were to 
to ask us today, I mean, if you were to ask the average Christian, oh, where do you think God resides? I think it would, the answer would be different, but similar. Like we might say, yes, like God is everywhere. He's in charge of everything, but like in the church is where he really is, right? You got to make sure like you can't say a bad word at church because he'll hear it extra better, right? Or like he resides within holy people. So if you're around a pastor or something, you got to act a certain way because God, you know, is more intact with those people or those places than he is other. And what this book shows us is that that is emphatically untrue, that even in Persia, even for the Jewish mind, the pagan godless people who rejected uh, the God of Israel, even there, God is working, that God is not absent, no matter where we might be, that he is in control of all of it. And that's why it's significant that this book does not take place in Israel, but in Persia. And here's what it says next, verse 4. He, talking about uh, the king, uh, displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. And so he's prov- he uh, provided this massive banquet uh, for the coming war with Greece. And so to try to rally up political allies, try to get the kingdom united for what was going to happen, it's not that the, uh, the feast itself would have lasted 180 days, but there was some sort of public display for six months to kind of rally the troops, if you will, for this upcoming war that they wanted to wage. Verse 5, it says, At the end of this time, at the end of the feast, The king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red and feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to the royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Now, there's two things about this that we need to understand. First is that other than the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, it was uh, very rare that an Old Testament writer would spend this much amount of time describing the place of, of, any, of any other places other than the tabernacle or temple. The point about all this detail is to show how insane and lavish this place was. Like, I don't know about you, but they had so much gold. They didn't only have gold cups, but they were each specially customized made. It was crazy. Whatever they wanted, they could have. And secondly, another thing that would have stuck out to an original reader, uh, particularly a Jewish original reader, was, again, the lavishness of this place. And secondly, in this time, typically when you would do festivals or banquets, you would have what was called a toastmaster. And whenever the toastmaster said you could drink, that is when everyone would take a drink. But yet what we see here is that anybody could drink whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it. And it's supposed to show us this, that the the lavishness, and the unprincipledness of human behavior if we are left to ourselves to do whatever we want. We're going to see this theme all the way throughout the book. And so if I could just make a point here, especially for, again, the original Jewish leader, a reader who often assumes financial blessing with God's uh, favor on your life, here's a point that, that I think the author is trying to make. That prosperity is not a measure of God's blessing. 
Prosperity is not a measure of how faithful you are. Now, it is true that God can, if he chooses, bless us in material or financial ways. But just because you have a lot does not mean that you have God as a part of your life or that he is moving in your life. And we know that because, again, this this, uh, Persian empire uh, is going to do a lot of horrific things, and they have a lot of money. And so we just need to be careful as we go today not to assume that maybe if you're struggling, maybe if financially you're in a hard spot, or maybe difficult things things are happening to you, that does not mean that God has abandoned you. It does not mean that you're being unfaithful in some way, and it does not mean that, you are, that God doesn't care. That there's a lot of factors in our life that we live in a broken and fallen world, and just because you have a lot or because you have a little, little does not reflect what God care, or how God views you and how much he loves you. If we're not careful, uh, we can measure, we can put, we can measure uh, certain things in our life the wrong way as a kind of litmus test to how faithful or how good of a person we think we are or how much God loves us. And I don't know if you've ever done this, uh, but I read uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, about 12 years ago in Tennessee, talking about this idea of how we can measure things wrongly, right? Uh, He went to basically a thrift shop, and he bought uh, a copy of the Declaration of Independence in a salt and pepper shaker for $2.48. And I'm not sure why, but uh, sometime later when he was home, he was uh, looking things up about the Declaration of Independence, and he found that in 1820, John Adams commissioned 200 replicas and copies of the Declaration of Independence to be made. And somehow he started to think about his. I don't know if the size was the same or there's something interesting about it, but he decided to have someone come and praise his little copy that he bought to see like, if it was authentic or, or what about it. And so he comes to find out at this point, uh, there was only 35 known remaining copies uh, of these 200 that were originally written. Only 35 were remaining. He happened to have number 36. And so like any wise man would, he decided to sell this thing. And so what he originally bought for $2.48, he sold for $477,650. That is awesome. Now, what's the thing, right? No one had any idea, right? It was sold cheaply because they just thought it was some knockoff thing. Again, prosperity is not a measure of God's blessing. So I don't know. I mean, I know it's the beginning of the year, and I don't know why you're here today. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you feel like new year, new me. I got to get better. You just need to know that God loves you where you are, and do not think that God's favor, God's care to you is tied to how financially or how well things are going on in your life because for, uh, for King Xerxes, things are going well, but God is nowhere to be seen. And so if we continue reading verse 9, here's what it says next. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from wine, Ahasha commanded, now I want to make a point here before I read these names. If you ever find yourself in a situation, Bible study or whatever, where you have to read the Bible aloud and you come across names you have no idea how to pronounce, you do two things. You read them quickly and with authority, and people will assume you know what you're talking about. Okay, so that's what we're going to do throughout this book. The queen is going to, uh, 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 the queen is going to feel, she's, the king is feeling good from wine, and so he commands Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zithar, and Carcass. That sounds good to me. Let's keep going. Um, the seven eunuchs who personally served him to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. Now, here's what's going on here. Queen Vashti was exceptionally beautiful. We're supposed to think that because it's mentioned here twice in just a couple of verses. 
Near the end of, the, uh, end of this massive banquet, uh, the king has his eunuchs. The eunuchs were uh, castrated men who could be trusted, trusted, trusted excuse me, uh, with the queen or with his concubines uh, because they could not do anything with them. And so he had his eunuchs bring his queen to him to, to publicly display her. Now, this does not mean like, look how beautiful this is. This means with a crown and likely little, probably no clothing that she was supposed to uh, expose herself to all these drunken political re- uh, uh, rulers. Now, we are not told why. Why? But she says no. Now, obviously, this is a very humiliating request. It is a very violating request, and it would have gone against custom to ask the queen to do something like this. But again, one of the things difficult about this book is that we're told she says no, which is very courageous on her part, but we're not told why. So she does not do this. The king is uh, furious and he's embarrassed because the kings at this time uh, would have uh, been uh, considered some like, like gods, that they had absolute control, absolute power. Nobody ever refused the, queen, the king. And so not only is he uh, angry that he's being refused, but he's also embarrassed because he has all these political leaders and allies who are now seeing that he is not getting what he wanted. Now, I want to make this point. As we read this and as we read chapter 2 in the coming weeks, we are going to sing, uh, see that King Ahasuerus makes some very uh, despicable and evil uh, decisions. And while we should be disgusted with some of the things that he does, we also need to understand this, that if we are not careful, if we kind of reject God and go on our own way, we are also equally uh, able to do some of these evil things. In other words, here's this point that I want us to understand as before we continue, that evil is not restricted to those who simply have power. Evil is not restricted to those who have power. In other words, we may not have the power to do some of the things that Xerxes does, but we can still do some of the things that he does within our own lives. What do you think pornography is? It is not anything different than what he is asking to do with the queen. Uh, we not, may not have lavish and custom-made uh, golden goblets, but we can easily consume much too, way too much alcohol, get drunk, and make poor decisions. And I do not say this to condemn us, to make anyone feel guilty, but for us to know that evil is not something that is only restricted to those who have power, right? It's really easy for us to look at politicians or the Fortune 500 CEOs or people with a lot of money and say, how dare they, completely ignoring that it is within us as well. Evil is not restricted to simply those who have power, but it is in all of us, and God is inviting us to come and follow and know Him to help us through these times. The question for us is, are we intentional about loving God and loving other people? Are we intentional about that? Because if not, we can do small things within our maybe small circle of power that would be equally egregious as what King Xerxes did if we had the power that he had. Evil is not restricted simply to those who have power. And so we are supposed to look at this king with caution and with reflection in our own lives. And so if we continue, here's what happens next. Again, the queen says no, he's angry, he's embarrassed, verse 13. So the king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Krishna, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mereses, Marsana, and Mumukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered 
by the eunuchs. Now, what's interesting here is that, again, uh, the king is uh, uh, meeting with his highest officials about what he should do about the situation. There are political ramifications potentially at stake, and so he wants to find out what he should do with the queen. And so he brings them in. He says, what should we do here? Now, the irony about this is that he is going to make a much bigger deal about the situation than would have, uh, would have typically happened had he let this thing go. Typically, especially something between a king and a queen might be very personal. So you might wonder, like, why would he involve other people? But again, he involves other people because, he, because of everyone who saw what would happen. And so here's what they come up with. Verse 16, Mamukin said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every, or who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered the queen Vashti before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who heard about the queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. Now, what's recommended here, again, is essentially that, for, in other words, for other wives not to hear about Queen Vashti's example and refuse their husbands like she reviews the king, something, a decree must be made to tell everybody that they can't do this or else they are going to get in a lot of trouble. Again, the irony of this here is that what was only probably known by a few people is about to be spread throughout the entire empire. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this where something happened to you, and then in your anger, you made it 10 times worse. That is what's supposed to be happening here. One of the funny things uh, about King Ahasuerus is that in Hebrew, uh, that literally means king headache. And what we're supposed to see here from a Jewish perspective is they're looking at all the dumb decisions that this king has made, obviously this being one of them. And so he's, uh, he's upset. He's embarrassed. He does not want other women to think that they can do what his queen has done. And so they come up with a decree and say that you can't do this. And here's what they, here's what they decide. Verse 19, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree and let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter the king Ahasuerus' presence and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all the women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own people and house and speak in the language of his own people. So essentially what happens here is that Vashti is divorced and kind of stripped of her duties as queen. She is not killed. We're not told why. We're not told what happens to her, but she's probably banished to a life of loneliness. Uh, and that is what happens. She decides not to do it. Again, we're not told why, but in her courage, she says no, and then she is banished. Now, here's kind of some more, some of the irony that we're going to see throughout this book, especially if you're an original reader, which you would have understood or took in, that the author of Esther, whoever this book, whoever the author is, again, likely writing about 20 years or so after the events that take place in this book actually happen, is showing us the quote-unquote wisdom of this king. Historically speaking, in the kingdom of Persia, what would often happen is that when officials and the kings wanted to make decisions, they would get drunk like they did here, make decisions while they are drunk. The next day, they would wake up after they sober up. Then they would decide whether or not they liked the decision that they made while they were drunk. 
Now, to them, they, again, there was this belief that when you were drunk and intoxicated, it made you closer to the gods, and so that's how they did it. Now, what's interesting here is that they thought they came up with a good plan. They thought, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make things the way that we want to make them. And what we actually see throughout this book is that they, just like we, don't actually get to decide what happens, right? Things can happen sometimes in our control, sometimes without our control, where we think what we say is going to go. And yet what we actually find is that God is always working in the details, always, whether it's, whether it's good decisions that we have made or bad decisions that we have made, that God is always working and can use absolutely any situation for his good. And so the point that we need to understand as we're beginning this book of Esther is this, that we are not in control. We think we are in control. We try to order our lives just like King Xerxes and the, and, the, and the political leaders of Persia. We try to do certain things, and when things don't happen our way, we try to do things to, to maybe a different way. And we need to understand that we are not in control. And the sooner that we understand that, the better things go for us so that we can trust the one who actually is. It kind of reminds me, and I'm sure you have examples of this at times in your life too, where maybe you planned for something, and then things didn't go as planned, right? Because you were reminded, yet again, that you can try and control and think through everything you want to think through, but sometimes things happen that you cannot control. I, I want to, an example for me is when uh, I proposed to Christina. I did a great job. I'm not, I'm not very romantic, but I did a great job. She says I did a great job with that, okay? And so what happened here, I'm going to share a little bit of story, and how even when I meticulously planned, it did not quite go as I expected, and Christina's favorite part of the story is what I did not plan. Uh, we, it was January. She knew the proposal was coming, and so the day before, I think it was, we were going to go to like a fancy restaurant on a Wednesday night, and so the day before, maybe that morning, I said something came up, essentially, can we move it to another day? So she wouldn't think anything of it, so it was moved to a couple days later. We go to this restaurant. As we're leaving, uh, her friend calls her uh, because she's hysterically, she's in hysterics, and she's upset. Uh, the church that we are a part of, Christina also worked there at the time, it was, a, it was a large church, and the back of the auditorium is where there was a room where you would count money and offerings and all that sort of thing, uh, but you had to have like a key fob to get in there. Now, you couldn't lock yourself in the room, but for some reason, some of the staff thought that they could, and so we had this plan where her, her friend or her coworker called her, said that she was depositing money that she had found in the kids' area into the, uh, into the you know, the, the money room thing, whatever they call it, I don't know, it was never in there, and, uh, and she said, I'm locked, I can't get out, and so Christina's like, like, oh, I'm so sorry, because we were going to go to the movies. She's like, can we stop by my apartment first so I can get my keys, and then I can let her out, and then we can keep going. And I'm like, yeah, sure, that's fine, not a big deal, whatever. And so we go. We go on campus. We were in college at the time. Uh, she go, we, I get to her apartment. She runs out, gets the key, runs back in her car. And as we're leaving campus, before we left the campus and got to the church, I really had to pee. <laughs> I really had to go to the bathroom. And so I stopped the car run, uh, before we get off our campus, run into the woods and go to the bathroom. And she's thinking, why are you, what are you doing? Why can't you wait until we get to the church and just go to the bathroom? What she didn't understand is that I, that's not how things were going to go. Like, there was a proposal. I couldn't be like, hey, don't go inside. Let me, let me, right? And so that way, when we got to the church, she goes to the auditorium. Uh, there's candles, a keyboard, all this sort of thing, right? I had to be there. I couldn't be in the bathroom when she saw that. And so Christina's favorite part of this whole proposal is how I pulled off to the side of the road and ran to the bathroom, and she had no idea what was happening, Right? And I share that story so because that is true of our lives. We can talk about our dreams and our passions and our desires and the jobs we want to have and the kids and how we want them to behave and all those sort of things, but we are not in control. And when we think we are, it leads us to uh, maybe this false belief, this false security that none of us can actually have. 
And as we talk about uh, uh, Esther, as we begin this book, I'm reminded of what one commentator said. It'll be on the screen. Talking about this idea of where is God and talking about how he is ultimately the one in control, not us. He says this, that God is present implicitly, but not explicitly. Already, the reader anticipates that Xerxes as a Gentile will be superseded by God's sovereign choice of a new queen, even the Jew, Esther. The narrative is now ready to introduce us to a new, a new character. Vashti has courageously uh, entered and exited, and she has prepared the way for one to replace her and to exceed her courage. That we are beginning to see the foundations of how Esther is going to come to be and how all along there are so many examples we're going to see that in the moment nobody would have expected, nobody would have thought God was anywhere, and then we see this is what God was doing all along. And as we kind of end chapter one this morning, and as we reflect on this idea of absolute power uh, and absolute uh, sovereignty to make the decisions to do whatever you want, right? We are reminded that only a king that has perfect character can actually uh, use and actually should have this absolute power, right? We are seeing, and we're going to see Xerxes, who was considered a god who could do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted, making a lot of terrible decisions. And we're reminded that only someone who has the character and goodness of love and love should actually be in that place to do whatever they want and to say whatever they want to say and to have whatever they want to have happen, happen. And what we see is that this is Jesus for us, that Jesus is the perfect king who doesn't demand submissiveness to us. He doesn't make us do things that are not our, for our good. He doesn't make us do things for his pleasure that bring us shame and dishonor and embarrassment, but instead he gives of himself, right? This is the gospel, that Jesus would come in the form of a man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He doesn't say, hey, come to me like puppets. Hey, come do this. Hey, don't do this. And if you don't obey me like Queen Vashti, I will never speak to you again. You will never enter my presence again. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is that unlike Vashti in this situation, we make bad decisions. We decide to go our own way. And yet, because he loves us, he is still there and he is desiring a relationship with us. It's not about us. It is about him, what he has done for us, and his invitation to come and be accepted and loved and forgiven by him. In other words, especially if we compare Jesus to maybe Xerxes or even Jesus to us in our own lives and how we can live and operate and do things our own way, here's what we see, that Jesus is our true and better king. Jesus is our true and better king. He is the opposite of Xerxes in every way, and he's the opposite of us in every way. Just to give you some point of comparison of how Jesus is different than Xerxes and different than us, here's what we see, even in the first chapter, that, G- that, that Jesus himself is more wealthy because he owns all things, and he is more powerful than Xerxes. That Xerxes was thought that he was a man who had become God, when what we see is that Jesus is actually a God who had became a man for us. Xerxes died, and nobody worships him, right? Jesus conquered death, and billions historically have recognized him as God. Xerxes had subjects from every known nation of the world at that time, and yet we see that Jesus is in Jesus' kingdom. He has joyful worshipers, not out of submissiveness, not out of you better do this, but out of joyful love for what Christ has done for us. We see that Xerxes threw enormous banquets, and what we know is that Jesus will will make his pale in comparison in his kingdom. 
We saw and we know historically that Xerxes' kingdom came to an end and Jesus' kingdom has no end. Xerxes thought himself as the king of kings and he died and was ultimately judged by the king of kings, Jesus is our true and better king. And as we begin this new year, and as we maybe again try to think, how, how, how am I going to get better? Who are my spiritual disciplines? Or here how is I'm going to be a better person? And we need to understand that Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Following Jesus is not about what we have done, but what he has done for us. And what we are seeing in Esther, and what we are seeing in our lives as we look back over the scope of our lives, especially when we die and see Jesus face to face, is that God was present and is present from the very beginning and he is just getting started. Jesus is our true and better king who came and gave of himself, who did for us what nobody and not even ourselves could do for ourselves. He gives us love, he gives us grace, he gives us forgiveness, and he invites us into a relationship with him. He is a good king that loves you, that gives his life for you, and invites you into a better and more fulfilled life that can only be found in him. Let's pray.